It's really not about so much what somebody else did or in the past. The relevant question is, how is your life going now? The transition for self-forgiveness involves real honesty. Sometimes forgiveness takes time. Sometimes it has to be patient. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today is going to be an absolute masterclass on the subject of forgiveness. And joining me today on this endeavor is Dr. Fred Luskin, who is the author of books such as Forgive for Good and Forgive for Love, and is a leading researcher and teacher on the subject of forgiveness. He's the director of the Stanford Forgiveness Projects. He's also a senior consultant in health promotion at Stanford University and is a professor at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. He presents lectures, workshops, seminars, and trainings on the importance, health benefits, and training of forgiveness, stress management, and emotional competence throughout the country. And I think y'all are really going to dig this episode because forgiveness is so hard. It's so challenging, especially during this time of year. And we're going to talk about it all today. So I think you're really going to get a lot out of this one. So without further ado, help me in welcoming Dr. Fred Luskin to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Fred, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today on all things forgiveness. And I guess a good primer for us to start is, you know, forgiveness is something that's super hard for so many people that are listening to this. And we all have had some obstacle that, that relates to this subject in our lives, either now or in the past. But what inspired you as a psychologist to go down this niche of forgiveness and why do you really think it's it's so important? It had nothing to do with being a psychologist that got me interested. It was being a normal human being who was pissed off and frustrated and not being able to untie my own shoelaces about it. It's very easy to take misfortune and, and not get over it. And it's really easy to blame someone else for your own suffering. So I've spent parts of my life doing both. There was just a a particular episode where I started to recognize how much I was getting in my own way and how dangerous that was for the really positive life that I wanted. So one came up into my face and said, you need to deal with this. But it had nothing to do with being a psychologist. Then when I was in graduate school getting my degree, I figured if somebody like me who was educated and was almost a therapist and and could be so waylaid by this, it had to be a big issue. So I did my dissertation study on forgiveness, on the methods that helped me. Amazing. And so you've had both personal and professional experience around the subjects of forgiveness. And in all your years studying this and teaching others, as you look back now, like why is forgiveness so hard for so many people? 
I mean, there's so many reasons. Culture is one where we align as tribes and create enemies out of people who are different than we are or don't see things the same way or are competing for resources. So then cultures enter into wars, disagreements, blame factories, where it's outside of themselves, the, the responsibility for their own well-being. There's the individual ego, which likes to position itself at the center of the universe and believes that all good things should happen to them and is very poor at seeing the ubiquity of suffering. There's, I think there's probably even some biology there where we have some aspect of our primitive response to threat, danger, and bad behavior is to want to strike back at it. My guess is at some level, unforgiveness long-term is probably not that different from chronic pain in the sense that the original stimulus has long ceased its function, but there's some aspect of the brain and the nervous system functioning that is now acting independently to stimulate pain responses. I think something like that operates some kind of misapplied, mistripped nervous system that can keep some people's brains firing 20 years after their parents are dead or 10 years after the drunk driver has long left the scene because there's something like close to stupid about it. Right. You know, to to keep on blaming something year after year or generation after generation on its face, it's not that helpful to, to human flourishing. Right. Yeah, that that all makes sense. And I know one of the things I've heard you talk about is that there's a level of resentment and anger like as human beings that's normal after a tragic event happens. Absolutely. So in that moment when something like that happens, like what advice do you have for people so that the resentment doesn't become unhealthy and they can heal from that event and forgive that experience or that person in a way that's conducive for them to grow as an individual. I'll give you a very quick example of that. Like if somebody cuts you off on the freeway and and may come close to harming you, then like getting frustrated and giving them the finger for five seconds, it's not unhealthy. It's not crazy. But, you know, giving them the finger and then chasing after them and making sure they see you and yelling at them, And then calling 10 friends and telling them that there's crazy people on the road, that's exaggerated. And so it starts with even, is our response exaggerated? And some people have hugely exaggerated responses. Their nervous system is a flaming mess. And other people have pain. But it starts with also, is this a somewhat appropriate level in response to the offense? So one person can lose their job, feel somewhat angry and and very sad and scared because they don't have a future. And another person can become like, not homicidal, but in crazed with rage and resentment. So right there, you see a response that's out of alignment. 
with more normal responses, more appropriate responses. Anger is protective. Sadness is an appropriate emotional response to loss. Fear is an appropriate response to confusion and not knowing. Those are all helpful. They help you explore the terrain. And the most important advice is to don't shut those down too quickly. Mm. Like feel the anger, feel scared, feel sad, because those are helping you, one, understand what happened to you, two, cultivate empathy for all the other people going through this stuff. And those emotions open us up to insights to see if those can help us solve the problem. So they found with, let's say, people who had some difficult experiences, like an affair, a real, a real, you know, a real difficult experience. Anger is a really great short-term response to that. It sets boundaries, it offers protection. But then they also found if after six months, your primary emotional response is still anger, then that's a very bad long-term prognosticator of your healing. So the, the short answer, which I'm not giving you, is to some degree, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's like five stages of grieving, those are a good metric for like dealing with loss and change and announcements of your helplessness. Those are a good paradigm. You should be angry at some point. You should be sad or hopeless or depressed at some point. You should bargain like, hey, this doesn't make any sense. Anything I can do about it. Like those all make sense. But the clarity is at some point you have to move to some kind of acceptance. And the problem is not the expression on the front end, but the keeping it going too long. Mm. Yeah. And you brought up a really good point in talking about something like an affair, which people have a super hard time letting go of and forgiving. And like you said, it's healthy to have that initial grieving and resentful and angry period when somebody wrongs you in a super harmful way that it's, it's essential, right? That was detrimental to your mental health, your well-being, your level of trust. But there's a lot of people, Fred, that don't make it out on the other side in a healthy way in the sense that they're holding on to this grievance for months, years, and even decades. So with all that said, how do you convince someone to forgive a person that they feel is unforgivable? I mean, the answer is somewhat like, I don't know if the word is humorous, but Dr. Phil had a TV show probably 20, 25 years ago where he would always ask people, how's that working for you? And that was his way of saying, like, are you helping your life by the way you're responding or are you hurting your life by the way you're responding? And that's probably the best single question that somebody can ask either themselves or other people. All right, you know, so your partner lied and cheated and stomped on your marriage and crushed your heart. And that was four years ago. So is throwing darts at her picture now, is that, is that, how's that working for you? You know, it's like, you know, you got a good life, you got a new partner, what? But the essential question is always, how is it working for you? How effective is it as a processing for you? 
it's really not about so much what somebody else did or in the past. The relevant question is, how is your life going now? Mm. Yeah, I love that answer because when something like that happens, and in my own personal experience, when someone has wronged me in a very harmful way, I mean, the, the hardest thing is you take this immense amount of offense for the situation. And then years and years go on and you get trapped in this victim mindset based on how someone treated you because you continue to blame people over and over and over again. So so many people get caught up in this pattern and it's like this, this cycle that they're used to because that's all that they know. So like, what are some good first steps for someone when they're in that situation other than writing down, like, how is this working for me? And let's just say they know that, that it's not this, this idea and the way they're thinking about the situation in their life isn't working for them. How can they start to begin to not blame that person, that situation and taking so much offense to whatever that happened and move towards some sort of level of forgiveness? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. If you ask those that know me best, what has been an ongoing struggle of mine, it's definitely been my sleep. I am sure many of you can relate to this. One small change I recently made is that I started taking Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers, which is the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. I've taken lots of magnesium supplements throughout the last decade, and this one is rare in that it actually makes me feel relaxed when I take it. Listen, if you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, one of the best things you can possibly do is start getting enough magnesium. But please do not run to the store to buy the first magnesium supplement that you find. Most magnesium supplements use only the two cheapest synthetic forms. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use the code Doug10 to save 10% when you try Magnesium Breakthrough. So go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug now to get your exclusive 10% discount. Now back to the show. It will be very hard to do if you don't have some mindfulness of how it's working for you. Mm. Like just as an example, when a relationship goes south and you have two people yelling at each other and, you know, really bad vibes between them. Both of them think it's the other person's fault. I mean, as a couple's therapist at times, you know, you see people come in and is all they want to do 
is tell the therapist how bad the other partner is. Well, you can't do therapy if that's the only way they can see it, which is it's somebody else's fault because there's then no incentive to change or grow. So at some point, every person has to come to some awareness that the way they're handling it is not good for them. Mm. That place cannot be changed. It, it doesn't have to necessarily be anything to do with therapy. I've spoken to many people that say they woke up in the morning and again, they hated their ex. And then they realized, well, wait, you know, that person's fine. Why am I spoiling my morning just because he was a complete shit? But there has to be some moment of my behavior, something that I'm doing or thinking has an impact on me. Until then, you're helpless because it's all about the past or other people or the world. The questions around how's that working for you? A caring friend can do a lot in that regard to help somebody. Mm. Like you don't look happy. Like it's, it's two years later, they've moved on. You look miserable. Like I'm concerned about you to hell with them. How's it working for you? Or every time I talk to you, you still tell me how pissed you are at your boss. Like, I get your boss was terrible, but you're still pissed. But they have to have some moment of mindful something to say, I'm contributing to my suffering. Yeah. When they have that, when they have any awareness, there's a whole host of things you can do. Like that's, but you can't put that awareness in them without going at it directly. Right. Like you have to, you have to point something out that they're responsible for. If they buy that at all, then a moment of like meditation or relaxation or prayer or anything that calms you down physically. 20 seconds over, let's take two deep breaths together. Just calm down. Now, just for this moment, do you really hate them? Like that's a moment they can do themselves. If you have children and you walk into your kid's room and you notice what a beautiful little person. In that moment, you don't hate anybody and you don't want to blame anybody because then you recognize you'll be spoiling more of your moment. So once they can see that they are in the present spoiling their life, that's where the movement begins. Mm. Could be anything. Go, you know, check out a sunset. Notice how beautiful it is. Then watch what happens when, again, you bring up how much you blame somebody. All of a sudden, the sunset is ruined. Mm. That's like the fast track to forgiveness is I'm like spoiling my own day. There's nothing really to do with them in the past. That's one. A second is like an existential query. Did I really think that in a world with so much garbage, like I was going to get a scot-free life? Where did that come from? Or how is it that with all the abundance that I have, I have like 
food in the refrigerator. I have running water. I have a roof over my head. I have friends. I have a job. I have a car. I probably had an education. All the people that I would meet. And there's still 800 million people who go without food every night. Who am I kidding? Like, you know, in this planet, I'm going to get a perfect existence? That's that's a second level existential query of well wait a minute it's like I'm in, I'm on planet Earth I'm I'm not on Shangri La and then the last easy thing to do is when you're going to complain again about something or someone stop and just remind yourself I don't have to go there right. And you can practice that and realize that all those moments where you felt like complaining about what happened, you could talk about anything. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot there that, that totally makes sense. And first, it's like developing this innate level of self-awareness around what exactly is going on in your life, how you're feeling, how you're contributing to the situation, because you have to take your power back in these situations because you can't change the past. You can't change how someone treated you. You can only change how you treat yourself and how you respond going forward. And I know we've kind of talked about situations where maybe that person isn't in our lives anymore. It was like a tough breakup. It was a divorce. Somebody had an affair and that person is no longer maybe involved in your life. But how do you handle forgiving someone that maybe is in your life, right? And when do you know when it's time to cut that person out of your life, whether it is a friend, maybe it is somebody you're in a relationship with, because you see this time and time again, they forgive this person and the same thing happens over and over again. I mean, there's no one specific answer. However, what I will say is anger is not always the best judge of whether you should cut them out of your life. So let me give you a couple, an example. So let's say you still have an abusive parent, but you live 20 miles from them and you're 40 years of age. And every time you go visit mom, she still cuts you. She's net negative and not kind. So every time you leave mom's house, you don't feel good about yourself. Well, whether or not you feel good about yourself, that's not mom's fault. Like mom's, she may be a garbage producer, but how you feel about yourself is up to you. But let's say you calm down and recognize that, wait a second, mom, she's been doing this since I've been two. I have a choice as to whether I buy her point of view. Okay, then you calm down. Then you can ask yourself a simple question. Is it good for me to go to her house? And the answer is clearly it's not. It has nothing to do with anger. It has nothing to do with blame. It's just that this is not a healthy, safe environment for me. Right. Yeah, I love how you brought that up in, in two ways. Number one, it's looking at yourself and knowing that Somebody else can't control how you feel about yourself. They can okay. maybe impact it based on the situation, but you have the power in that moment, in the moments going forward to change your state and how you feel about yourself based on your behaviors and your actions. And you also said the second part, which was setting a healthy boundary. Once you've created this idea of who you truly are and how you truly feel in that situation, asking yourself, is it good 
to go to your parents' house? And if the answer is no, then it's no. But I will say that I think sometimes, especially now with boundaries being such a hot word, that boundaries can, grudges can be disguised as boundaries. And people just say, you know what? Like, I'm just going to, I'm not going to go over there, not because I have any awareness of the situation, but just because I am still angry at that person. I'm not going to let that experience go, that person go, whatever it was. So how can you tell the difference between when someone is holding a grudge or setting a boundary? I mean, it's not a hard and fast distinction, but what the, the thing you just brought up was people managing themselves by dealing outside of themselves. What I brought up was people managing themselves by handling themselves. Right. So the more honest statement is, I'm mad at them. I can't manage that. So it's not good for me to go there because I don't, I'm not able to solve my anger. If and when I get a handle on my anger, then I can better evaluate what it is about them. That's the more honest way of handling that. You don't have to go see them. I mean, boundaries are good things. Boundaries can be because you're not safe with them or you're not safe with you. The problem is that we don't distinguish that. And so we blame them when we're not safe with us. But the real decision about whether the relationship is worth preserving That's about whether from a somewhat non-blaming place, we ask ourselves, is this good for me? And it often isn't, but sometimes it is. Like if you have an intimate partnership where you're battling a lot, but you have two children and you're angry with them because you're not getting your needs met. But when you calm down a little, you realize that, well, wait a second. Because of these kids, I need to do everything I can to manage me so that these kids have a family. Well, that's a whole different response than, you know, she's not good or he's not good. Because in the deeper place, when you're quiet, you realize what your real goals are. And that's what's missing when you make anger-based decisions. Right. Yeah, you're spot on because I think at the end of the day, we really have to take full control over our emotions, over our situation, over our, the way we feel, and then kind of come to terms with that situation with the other person when we're in a good state, when we're in that a good baseline so that we're not, like you said, reacting out of anger, reacting out of hurt, reacting out of sadness. So we're actually coming from a place where we feel comfortable with who we are in that moment to make a decision moving forward. But I was talking to somebody the other day, because I was asking like, what do you struggle the most with about forgiveness? Because this is somebody that has said that they just hold on to all these resentments. And I was like, oh, then you're perfect because I want to know like what the hardest thing is. And this person was telling me that they feel if they forgive somebody that has wronged them in their life, that they're enabling that behavior to continue. So what advice would you have for that person to let go of that grudge and set themselves free towards the path of forgiveness? I mean, you do want to be careful if you're enabling bad behavior. 
So if, if somebody is abusive to you and you keep on coming back, then you're not being your own friend. You've abandoned yourself. Mm. But if you hold a grudge and you're in relationship with somebody, the hard part is distinguishing between normal human flaws, which we all have, and things that are dangerous towards you. So you can't be in relationship with somebody and not see their weak points and their flaws and their smallness and their crazy little habits and all that stuff. Everybody's got them. On, this, on the other side of that, we also, because of our weaknesses and our flaws and our smallness, we sometimes exaggerate other people's because it triggers us. So our perceptions are modest, you know, but so are you angry at them or frustrated or hurt by them because they have normal flaws, which in order to be in relationship with them, you have to forgive because anybody you're in relationship with is a mess at some level. Or is it something beyond that kind of normal boundary where you have to then take care of yourself, sometimes clearly say no, end something? But just because you're upset is not enough of a guide. Mm. And that's one of the clear messages because your upset is not their fault. They may have things that deserve challenge. Yeah. But everybody does. Yeah. You're, you're so right, Fred. And I think a big key to embracing this empowerment, this self reliance idea that you're talking about when in relation to others is self forgiveness, too. And there's a lot of people that struggle with forgiving themselves for decisions they've made in the past, people they've wronged, experiences that they've created that haven't served them. So like, like how does somebody begin that path of forgiving themselves when they feel that some of the things that they've done are so wrong and are unforgivable or unforgivable? Well, I mean, with forgiving oneself, the, the same basic message applies, which is you're going to suffer for a while. So whether somebody abandoned you or lied to you or cheated you, you're going to hurt for a while. There's no, there's no shortcut in life like that. If your best friend suddenly decides to not see you anymore, you're going to be in pain. And that's just true. And part of like forgiveness is that maturity of recognizing that life has suffering in it. But with self-forgiveness, it's also true that some degree of guilt or shame or regret are healthy. They're a sign of health that I see my behavior. I don't like it. I'm willing to look at it and feel the pain of it. That's a positive thing. The question is for how long? And it's the same question on both sides, whether you're forgiving somebody else or yourself. But it's really healthy. Like if you cheated on a partner or you were drunk too much or you lied and your business went bankrupt, 
it's really good to feel bad for a while. Otherwise, there's no spur to change. But the transition point is not just about how you feel. The 12-step programs nailed it with make amends, make an honest accounting, and tell people you're sorry. So the transition for self-forgiveness involves real honesty. Like the 12-step programs really push. Like if you wrecked a family, then you have to go and apologize in any way you can and do anything you can to make it right. That's much more important than how you feel about yourself. That's trivial. But that's the power of self-forgiveness is that you can do things about it. Let's say you find out that you have a pattern that's hurtful. So feeling bad about it may be useful for a month or two. But if you don't go into therapy or you don't do something, feeling bad about it is meaningless. It's, it's essential as a first response, which is, wow, I didn't realize that my sarcasm really hurts people. So when you become aware of it, you want to apologize. Like, I'm really sorry. I didn't know that my mouth was that dangerous. But if you can't stop being sarcastic, go to therapy or enter a 12-step program or do something where you work on the problem. That's what's at the key of self-forgiveness is to recognize what you've done, do whatever you can to make it right, and then make some effort to change it. If it's a one-off, like an accident happened because you lost attention for a second, you simply accept your humanity, that you're not perfect, and that you're sorry, but, you know, things happen in life. And you move on from that. But if you did something either cruel or bad behavior, you have to change that. So that's something that pe people often don't want to hear. Yeah, people don't want to hear that they actually have to do the work and change the behavior that was bothering a person or them themselves, right? Exactly. I mean, and, it, and it seems that it's obvious that it's a lot more in depth than just saying, I'm sorry. Right. Like you have to actually words without change behavior are just words. You're not going to create a bridge in that relationship if you don't follow it up with some form of action. So there's a lot of people that are listening to this. Or there's people in, in general that they're begging for that person to forgive them. Like it's maybe a family member, maybe it's a friend, and they just know that they've really messed up, but they mm -hmm. can't seem to convince that person that they're truly sorry. So do you have any tips for somebody who might be listening to this on how they can actually prove to someone that they're sorry and that they deserve to be forgiven? Well, even preliminary to that, most people have no idea how to apologize. And there's research about what goes into an effective apology. Like If you're fighting with somebody and you say, I'm sorry you feel bad, that's not an apology. What an apology is, is I've noticed my bad behavior. It's me and nothing to do with anybody else. I screwed up. I want you to know that I see my bad behavior. I'm sorry, both for my bad behavior and its impact on you. 
That's a real apology, which is, I'm sorry that I lost my temper and I'm sorry that that caused you to you know, feel that like he can't trust me anymore. The apology acknowledges your behavior, also acknowledges the effect on them, and then includes some aspect of what, if anything, you can do to either make it right or make sure it doesn't happen again. That's what an apology is. We have such shallow, useless apologies that people don't, they know not to buy it. But a sincere, heartfelt apology followed up by some change will go distance for many people. There are some people you can't reach once you tripwired their response. But all things being equal, a sincere apology matters and then some follow-up behavior. So the, the biggest, the easy example is an affair. So a partner in a marriage has an affair, you know, is found to be dishonest, tells the partner they're sorry, that they recognize that, of course, that your trust is shattered and you don't see me the same way. Of course, I understand it's going to take time to rebuild trust. That's an apology. Then partner calls and says, where are you? A sincere apology says, oh, yeah, of course. I'm at Mickey's house. You want to speak to him? A less sincere apology says, don't bother me. You know where I am. Like it has to be followed up by a sincere understanding that what I did harmed somebody. Right. And I love how we, you talked about how to make a proper apology. Because that's something that I think just goes untouched when it comes to forgiveness and wanting. Untouched. You know? Untouched. <laughs> yeah. No question. Yeah. Because I mean, the, the, the simple response is, I'm sorry I made you feel that way. Or yeah, I'm sorry exactly. you feel that way. Or I'm sorry, but. That's it. You're completely disregarding the situation, their feelings. And, and like you kind of said, you're not taking any accountability for the situation in itself. And sometimes when you say, I'm sorry you feel that way. It's like putting the problem on them. Right. Like the problem is your feelings, not my actions. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much truth to that. And you were talking about how you, you do couples therapy sometimes for people who are trying to like rectify a relationship or a marriage. And we kind of went into some of the mistakes that people can make when trying to get somebody to forgive them. But I think this question is going to apply to anybody who's trying to seek uh, forgiveness or create, re rebuild a relationship with somebody. And that's like, what are some of the other common mistakes you see when two people are entering in a conversation when the goal is forgiveness? I mean, if I've harmed you and I have a conversation about it and like I say to you, of course, like I, of course you're pissed and I'm sorry that I did that. Sometimes forgiveness takes time. Sometimes it has to be patient. But even in the asking for it, there are kind of more or less humble ways of asking for it. So if I say to you, I'm sorry I did this now, you kind of hurry up and you need to forgive me. If we took a moment before that to just reflect upon how hard it's been for us to forgive, we would come at that person with a much more humble, like, 
nicer way. Like, yeah, of course, I, I know how hard this is. You know, it's like you trusted me and I you don't have to beat yourself up, but you just want to acknowledge the humanity of it. Right. Like, I'm hoping you can forgive me because I feel really bad. That's, you know, and I want to keep our relationship. But if there's humility there, that's very different than, well, we have our checklist. I've acknowledged the wrong. I've told you I'm sorry. I gave $10 to the the fund for your salvation. And now it's your turn, you know, change. Just like a simple human empathy and compassion in every inch of these processes goes a long way. Right. Right. And you made a good point that forgiveness takes time. And I guess the last thing I want to get into is, you know, we've talked about the initial grieving stages and how to have acceptance around a situation, how to take your own power back and own how you respond in those situations. And let's just say that somebody does forgive that person. They tell them they forgive them. They forgive themselves or whatever the case may be. Like, what's the process look like after that? Because I can imagine it's not as simple as telling somebody that you forgive them and then all of a sudden you're healed. So is there certain tools that you recommend when you're teaching somebody or when people ask you about this this subject to help them heal in a way that's very productive after they've forgiven someone? I, I think that there are two, two of the processes that I mentioned and 45 minutes ago are really helpful. One is some kind of quieting practice, whether it's taking a deep breath or picturing someone you love or just sitting out and having a cup of coffee on your deck and realize how beautiful things are. You need access to a quiet nervous system, putting your cell phone away so you can think. Those are all helpful for forgiveness because they keep you in touch with a part of you that isn't upset and angry. And that's critical. Second, to count your blessings. Mm. The more you can count your blessings, the more forgiving you are, because you start to see life as more yin-yang. There's good in it. There's not so good. But this is life. If I don't count my blessings, then I tend to miss a lot of what's going on in my life. And I'm the unhappier for it. But if, if you like can say to yourself, that friend didn't do right, but here's three friends that have done right, it puts it into more perspective and gives you a chance to see life in a wider lens, not just in the adrenaline-backed lens of the threat of something that didn't go well. Those are really important concepts of taking time to quiet down. It doesn't mean you have to go spend an hour doing yoga, but it does mean that you want to spend 30 seconds, multiple times to just center. And then that becomes more normal. And then you recognize more easily when you're completely away from that part of you. And the be thankful has a lot. If you you step out your front door and it's a beautiful day, you're going to more likely let go of resentment. If you see the sunshine, if you look at your partner or your friends or whatever, 
that's going to help your whole nervous system and your worldview see things more clearly. Hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's definitely like you've said, it's a process and it's not going to happen overnight. And once you forgive someone, this is going to be an ongoing healing process to check in with yourself, take quiet time and do the necessary things on a daily basis to better yourself. And I think once you are able to get comfortable with knowing that life's not going to always be easy, it's going to be challenging. Many times people are going to do you wrong. They're going to do you right, but they're also going to do you wrong as well. Exactly. That will help you gain more acceptance of when bad things happen to you or people treat you wrong in the future that you'll know like, okay, like this isn't about me. I need to really look at myself in the situation and control how I'm responding. Then that becomes like a muscle, just like anything else. And so my last question. But, but let me interrupt. The first part of the process is always allow yourself to feel unhappy or angry about things that shouldn't be disregarded so quickly that if somebody does treat you bad, it makes sense to throw a pillow. It makes sense to shout. It makes sense to call five friends and say, you won't believe what this asshole did. That part is absolutely healthy and a period of time where you're disappointed, sad, scared, depressed even because of a loss of an illusion or friendship. You don't push that away. You allow that to be part of your life. Then it's then that you recognize that it's my coping that is also the problem, not just what happened. But it starts with the problem being the problem. And then after a while, the coping joins the problem as the problem. And you start realizing that I can't do that much about the problem, but I can sure make a difference in my coping. Right. But you have to have that properly sequenced. Got it. That definitely makes sense. And it coincides, obviously, with what you said earlier. And so I guess as we bring our conversation to a close, I don't know if there's a way that someone would know, but do you feel that there's any signs of knowing that someone has actually forgiven someone and that they've let go of that resentment? Absolutely. That you can talk about it without going crazy. It's really simple. It's like I've spoken to people who at the age of 45 say, like the completely benign example could say, you know, I had a very bad like high school experience and the teachers were cruel to me. And you can see that it still affects them. And then they say, because of that, like I didn't succeed as much in life. You haven't forgiven that. I mean, it's still in you. Or somebody else said, you know, when I was in my 20s, I really struggled because I high school was awful. But I learned. I learned to, to heal it. So you can hear the difference. Can you talk about your own life with the struggles being in the rearview mirror and the efficacy, the things you've learned, that's in the front mirror. That, yeah, of course, I had bad parents and I learned what I had to do to cope with it. Or I had a bad relationship and I learned or I grew or I made peace. But it's always in the story. That's how you know. 
Awesome. Well, I'm sure people are going to get a lot out of that as well as the rest of our conversation. I mean, gosh, we went so in depth on so many levels of forgiveness. And Fred, I, I really wanted to thank you for coming on and sharing so openly on this subject of forgiveness that we all struggle with. And I appreciate that. And as you know, anybody who's a certain age, you recognize life always has some stuff that you need to let go of. Yeah. And we, we were, we're all, I'm sure, still struggling with some level of resentment and forgiveness towards ourselves or towards someone else. And it's just, it's an ongoing journey. No question. Thank you, Doug. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. All right, Fred. Thanks for coming on. Bye-bye. And so for those who are listening, you, I'm sure you got a lot out of this combo with, with Fred on forgiveness. And like I said a minute ago, we went so in-depth on everything when it comes to forgiveness, how to forgive yourself, how to forgive others, how to reconcile relationships. And what I'd like you to do is to share a takeaway. And I don't believe that Fred is on social media. So when you're sharing the takeaway, tag myself. And what I want you to do is share one nugget on forgiveness that Fred shared in our conversation, what your biggest takeaway was and how you're going to apply it to your life, because we would love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.